Lord, together as we've sung this simple song with profound truth, we praise you that you are our Savior. It is pure grace. It is your kindness to us in the Son that we have a Savior who is strong. And we have a Savior who is kind. We praise you for the work that he has done to bear our sin. We gather today in his name because of that work. And pray now that by the ministry of the Spirit of God that you will continue to teach us and direct us in your ways. That we might draw near to you today. As we consider this word, draw to saving faith those who do not know Christ. And for those who do, Lord, may we here meet with you at your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Please be seated. An impoverished family lives together in a cramped, squalid inner city apartment. They struggle to meet basic needs and endure a depressed, crime-ridden neighborhood. Their possessions are few and their prospects are even fewer There's really no hope that they will ever escape the situation that they are in. But one day the mail arrives and mom opens an official looking letter and she screams. The family quickly gathers around and she reads the news that her estranged uncle has died and bequeathed to her a beautiful 20 acre tract of land valued at $5 million dollars. There are no costs to this niece, none. All expenses paid and the property will be hers. All that her husband and she must do is sign the title deed. Well, how will this family respond? How would you respond in that situation? This certainly would be a response, certainly a response of celebration, but after that, they will spring into action, won't they? All kinds of things will start to happen that they had never dreamed about. They will schedule the soonest possible signing of the necessary legal documents. They will make plans to travel to see the new property. They will begin to plan how best to leverage this new asset as an investment in their financial future. They might even begin to start already the dreams of selling some of it and building a home. A home that they would never dreamed they could have. Their response will fit the wonder of the blessing generously bestowed upon them. Well, you know where I'm going. How much more should we respond to the revelation of the work of our Savior, the work that He has done to redeem us? As we receive this news, receive this revelation, there will be a certain response that is appropriate, and it will be a life-transforming response. In our journey through the book of Hebrews, the author has reached that point in the argument. From the first verse of chapter 1 through chapter 10 and verse 18, the author has provided a masterful defense of the supremacy of our great high priest, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We've been walking in the clouds here through these chapters to see who Jesus is and the wonder of the salvation that we have in him. 
The book begins long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 8 of that chapter, we find the Son spoken of in these terms. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The deity of Christ established here early in the book. Jesus is presented then as the last and eternal high priest who has died providing the final and complete sacrifice for sin. As we move into chapter 7, he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. This unique, one-of-a-kind priest that stands forever in ministry to his people the mediator, chapter 8, of a new covenant that supersedes the old covenant. And then move to chapter 10, in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. There's that old covenant provision of covering of sin under that Mosaic law. But, verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 19, Therefore, Brothers, therefore, family of God. On the basis of all that we have seen, we move now to the implications. Let's go back to our family. Let's say that there's a three-year-old in that family that's hearing all the screaming and yelling and all the upheaval and the joy in the home. And What does this child want to do? doesn't get what's going on, doesn't understand the implications. Can we just go back to playing with my toys here? She doesn't get it. She doesn't perceive what has happened to her family. But anyone in that family who gets the implications of the news will respond with life-orienting passion. It will change the way they look at life and what they do in these coming days. Where are you with respect to the revelation of Jesus Christ? We might be dead to it, just doesn't get through, doesn't mean anything. But if we understand what has been revealed here about the majesty, the exaltation, and the saving work of Jesus Christ as our great high priest, there must be a response. There will be a response. And so it's with that message revealed about the glories of our Savior that we come now to the therefore in this place. It is a big, bold, all caps, therefore. 
We turn now from all that we've seen about the glories of Christ to say, here's the response. Here's the so what in the actions of our daily lives. Therefore, we find in this passage three imperatives. They're not literally technically imperatives in the Greek text, but they're subjunctives which act that way. So they are, as I think rightly seen here as imperatives. We'll see a number of phrases that come across as imperatives here. But it really is centered around three ideas and commands. They're not commands as, they're commands in the sense of invitation. Commands in the sense of this will be the implications. And the first we find in verse 22 is to draw near. In verse 23, to hold fast. And in verse 24, to consider one another. We'll work our way through that. But first of all, in the area of to draw near to God, verse 19, we're going to work down through verse 21 with the reason that we can draw near to God, and that is the work that Christ has accomplished as a great high priest. So we're moving toward that draw near in verse 22, but here's the foundation of it. Here's the inspiration of it, in a sense. It's, it's not the most careful summation of the book, But in a sense, that's what he's saying here in verses 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers, family of God, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us respond in this way. Let's consider verses 19 through 21 just a a, a little longer But we have here, as one author puts it, the transition in the book from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to practice. Therefore, links to let us draw near. And so these intervening verses are the foundation of this command. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... If you worked through the book of Hebrews ever in your life, if you've been with us through this series, that makes perfect sense. That's much of what the author's been saying for some time now. The backdrop is what? The backdrop, again, is the tabernacle under the Old Covenant with this highly restricted sanctuary. In contrast to the restricted approach to God at the Old Covenant tabernacle, born again, New covenant believers in Christ can enter God's presence with confidence. We can do, in a superior sense, what only the high priest could do in Israel one short period of time on one day per year. This confidence is supplied by what? By our good deeds? By our spiritual pedigree? No, it is, verse 19, by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. By His death alone, we enter God's throne room. Today in prayer, someday in person. We enter God's presence, verse 20, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. So the new way is the way of the new covenant by which Christ offered his sacrificial blood in our place. It is a living way because unlike the sacrifices of the old covenant, he lives. 
and it is living because he lives forever. It will always be the source of life for his people. That curtain, referring to the temple curtain that was rent at the resurrection of Christ, torn from top to bottom, represented a radically new way into the presence of God achieved by Christ's death. So Jesus' torn body, so to speak, opened the way for God's people into the throne room of his presence. As the veil was split, so in a sense, Christ giving his body in the place of his people to die the penalty that we deserve rips away right open into the throne room of God on the merits of Christ alone. And adding to that, he is now, verse 21, the great priest over the house of God that is over the church. So what is the appropriate response? What is the appropriate response to who Jesus is and to what he has accomplished for us. If we get what is taking place here, then we will draw near to God. Verse 22. You have inherited a valuable property. How do you respond? You go see it. Jesus died so that you can enter God's joyful fellowship in his presence. How do you respond? You do it. You approach Him. You walk in fellowship with Him. So we see there in verses 19 to 21, the reason that we can draw near to God is the work that Christ has accomplished. In verse 22, the manner in which we should draw near to God is worked out uh, further in this verse. So there's that that first uh, primary point, let us draw near. This is the proper response to come into the presence of the Lord through Christ. And how do we do that? With a true heart and full assurance of faith. That is a heart, the heart speaks of the inner being. So those who participate in the blessing of the new covenant are given a new heart, a spirit that rejoices to trust God at His word. Secondly, verse 22 with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. The sprinkling points back to the old covenant when Moses, remember we talked about that earlier, he's, that mixture of blood and water that he sprinkled symbolically on the people and sprinkled upon the tabernacle to dedicate it. So sprinkling here speaks of a consecrated cleansing of the conscience. Do you remember that in chapter 9, verses 9 and verse 14? The old covenant system could not entirely cleanse the conscience. But the work of Christ has permitted that. And apart from that priestly work of Christ, have you think of it? No human being in the history of the planet has ever had a clear conscience. No one to this point has ever had a clear conscience. Now the Old Testament saint could perhaps sense some temporary freedom from the guilt of sin as they offered a sacrifice, but as they offered that sacrifice, they know they're going to be right back here doing it again. They can look around. There's nobody that doesn't come back with another sacrifice again and again 
and again. It is only by this once for all, never to be repeated, complete, eternally sufficient sacrifice of Jesus in the place of sinners that any human being has ever been able to honestly say, my sin is paid for. It's done. My guilt is removed, not by my merits, but by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Everything pointed to that sacrifice. Everything relied upon it coming true in time. With the death of Jesus, we now can say, my conscience is clean. Not because there's no sense of ongoing guilt, not because I don't continue to sin, but because I know that my sin is wholly paid for. And that my standing is in Christ. We come with a conscience in that sense that is sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. And thirdly, with our bodies washed with pure water. This is how we draw near to God. Another implication, our bodies washed with pure water. These qualifying phrases use language from the Old Covenant ritual system. And for that reason, I take this to refer to the washing of regeneration rather than to uh, literal physical baptism. The Old, Test- the Old Covenant background, there were ritual washings of the Bible, we find, of the Bible. Of the, they didn't ritually wash the Bible. Of the body. Uh, there were ritual washings of the body. And I think that's the background here. So I think probably a better parallel than to physical baptism is what we find here, for instance, in Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, <clears throat> but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This washing of the body was a physical washing for those under the Old Covenant in certain ritual. But that background picture then is of the washing of the Spirit of God uh, in, in the purification, in the salvation of the individual. Now, baptism is indeed an outward sign of the inner washing of the Spirit. So seeing baptism here is not going to cause any trouble. Many do see that as, ba- as a reference to, to New Covenant baptism. But I would just say this to push just a little longer. Since sprinkling points back to the Old Covenant purification ritual, it's likely that washing of the body points to the Old Covenant ritual system as well. Sprinkling the conscience in verse 22 is an allusion to the regenerating work of the Spirit, so bodies washed with pure water may also refer to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, washing of the body is not a way that the New Testament speaks of baptism. In fact, pointedly in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, it is not a cleansing of the body that is in view. And for these reasons, I would say this probably speaks more of regeneration, and there's many good uh, commentators that support that, although crack open any commentary, and probably most of them will say that it's water baptism. At any rate, all of this is pulling it together. 
If we get who Jesus is, if we get what he has done for us, we will respond by drawing near to him in spiritual fellowship. It's a given. Now, there's a, there's a, there's a command here. There is an encouragement here. But it's also a sense of it's inevitable. You will respond this way. When you realize what Jesus has done to put us in the presence of God, we will approach God. We will draw near to him. We will want to fellowship with him. And the qualifying phrases here in verse 22 indicate that a sinful heart hinders us from drawing close to God. Come with purified heart into his presence. So if you have hatred in your heart toward others, if our minds are fixated on godless practices and ideas, if we're messing around in the sewer with our affections, if we become fixated on what we want for ourselves in this life, we're going to struggle to approach God in purity. We're going to struggle to approach Him in sincerity. And so it brings to mind again the utter necessity of repentance, of drawing to God demands that we repent of sin, that we confess our sin, that we come into His presence with purity of heart. It also indicates to us that a heartless worship is an affront to God. A worship that does not find joy in entering into His presence is deficient. We are to draw near to God. Secondly, verse 23, we're to hold fast our confession. This is the, this is the proper response to draw near the Lord in fellowship. Then verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That we will hold fast the confession. This means to uphold as true and right all that God has revealed to his people. It means we defend and rejoice in the truth God has entrusted to us in the Word and in Jesus. We hold fast that confession, the confession of our hope. I think it could say the confession of our faith. But here he uses the word hope. Our confession rests on what God has promised about the future. What he promises will come to pass. He will deliver on every promise. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will bring His people to His eternal kingdom. In that we trust. We put our confidence. We keep looking away from this crumbling world of despair to the future that God promises to us. Sin and suffering forever gone. Think of it, believer. Sin and suffering forever gone. Satan defeated, and God with us forever. That's where we're headed. There is nothing in this waking world that helps you keep that hope alive. Everything out there in the way this world talks about life, looks at life, goes about life, is all about the here and now. I mean, people might talk about eternity once in a while. This, yeah, I think it's going to all work out okay. They've gone to a better place, we might say. They don't mean it. They have no idea of what's out there. It's just shooting in the dark, hoping there's something beyond this life that's worthwhile. 
everything that we see is all about the here and now. If you have come to see who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, your eyes will be fixed on joining him. On going to that eternal home that you have inherited through Christ and being with him. We hold that hope tenaciously. It's life itself. And we hold it without wavering. Well, do you waver in your faith? Do you waver at times with what God has promised? John the Baptist had doubts about Jesus. The disciples had doubts about Jesus. You and I are going to have doubts about Jesus and the promises that he makes. There will be moments and perhaps even seasons where the faith of a genuine believer wavers. But let us fight for faith by returning again and again to what God has revealed in His Word. To consider again the promises that He has made about the future. To know what Christ has done to secure that future. For, as we see here in verse 23, He who promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, we will not hold true in persevering faith on the force of willpower. It is by seeing Christ for who He is, it is by believing Christ for what He has promised, that is what fuels the affections for the Lord that inspire our faith. To continue to know who Jesus is to continue to know what he has done, to continue to recite his promises and hold them close. It won't be willpower. It will be affections. That's what gives us the hope. We will confess most boldly what we treasure most deeply. Hold fast to your confession. And every one of us must determine to treasure Christ and trust his promises. For we will confess most boldly what we treasure most deeply. Hold fast your confession. This is the honorable response. Thirdly, focus on Christ's church. Draw near to God. Hold fast your confession. Focus on Jesus' church. Verse 24 And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Where did that come from? What are we talking about the church all of a sudden? This makes perfect sense. These are the people Jesus redeemed in this way. These are the people who are drawing near These are the people who are holding fast their confession. This is the body of Christ, the redemption that Christ has made of His people now gathering together. Build up that body. That's the natural response of the eyes that see who Jesus truly is. Let me look at verse 24 with you. Verse 24, just to consider it a bit longer. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. The Greek text would read more accurately something like this. Let us fix our attention on one another for provoking to love and good works. Let us fix our attention on one another. So one another goes with consider, 
not with stir one another up. Does that make sense? It's consider one another and do so in this way to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Focus on one another, on the victory of Christ, the souls redeemed by His grace. So it's a call to concentrate on the gathered church, on the believers, the members of His church. If we are learning to respond rightly to our Savior, we will focus on contributing to the edification of the church for whom Jesus died. Specifically, to stir one another up to love and good works. This word stir up is usually a bad word in the Bible. It speaks of agitating, irritating, provoking someone to anger, something like that. But here we're called to stimulate one another in a positive sense, to serve Christ faithfully, to love one another sacrificially. So we're a body that is drawing near to God in intimate fellowship, holding fast to the confession of our hope in the promises that He has made. And we are then focused on one another to stir each other up to live the kind of life Jesus saved us to live. This simple command requires a radical reorientation of how we think about the local church. And I celebrate that I see that reorientation in action in this assembly week after week, day after day. What is it by nature, by virtue of life under the spell of Western individualism? We are programmed to think of the church in terms of self. I mean, we'll go so low as to say, is the building comfortable enough? The lighting okay? Is the heat warm enough? Is, is, but, but more important, is the church a good cultural fit for me? Are there people who like me who I have reason to believe will like me? Will this church meet minimal ministry offerings that benefit me or, and or my family? What do I think about the music? The dress, the length of services, the parking lot. It is naturally programmed to think about life in those terms. It's not that any of those questions is innately evil, but they are small. They're peripheral. And given too much weight, they become selfish and idolatrous. What does verse 24 direct us to do? It exhorts us as members of Christ's body to consider others. To focus our attention on the growth and the spiritual prosperity of others. You see the exalted risen Christ? Then verse 24, consider His body. Consider others. I'm called to relate to other members so as to stir up their faithful service to Christ and to inspire mutual love for one another. Jesus died to redeem this body, so I give myself to see that body redeemed, built up in the faith, living out the life that Christ gave us. How do we do that? We could talk about that for a long time, but certainly through prayer for one another. 
May we focus even here in this moment and say, let us pray. Let us move one another by prayer. Privately and together. To pray with one another. Even informally as we break from this service. To in the aisles, in the lobby. I was going to say in the parking lot. Today that might not be a good idea. Uh, Pray with each other. Secondly, by winsome inviting faithful service to Christ. By the kind of service that doesn't say, this is my task, you stay out of it. But the kind of service that says, I'm here to pour my life out in service to Christ, join me. We build one another up in this way. We encourage one another in this way. Stirring one another to love and good deeds, certainly, thirdly, through our words. Oh, the importance of the informal conversations. But at other times, purposeful meetings and even formal teaching. And, oh, (laughs) the way this church has from time to time ministered to Beth and me through written words. Words of encouragement drawing from Jesus' promises that say, Do good, love others, keep serving. Well, another way to edify one another is to be together. Presence, verse 25, brings that out. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Apparently some had fallen into that way of life of just not getting with the congregation, choosing not to be present with them. As, as is a habit of some, but what's the opposite of neglecting to meet together is to encourage one another. And all the day, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, as you see the return of Christ coming, as our days are limited. Let me just offer some observations about this command as it relates to us as a church and to Christ's people. First of all, this is repetitive. But let me say it here under verse 25. Faithful church participation is not calibrated primarily to self, but primarily to others. Faithful church participation is calibrated to others. Don't neglect meeting, but encourage one another in perseverance, in faith. I'm to consider others. I'm not to neglect the gathering of the church, but rather to come together so that I encourage and build up and use the gifts that God has given me to strengthen that assembly, this assembly. Secondly, we see that Jesus died alone so that we might physically gather together for worship and mutual edification as His people. His sacrifice won this gathering. It secured it. Gathering with Jesus' church is God's command to us, but it is so because our gathering together is a fundamental reason for why He died, why He rose to give us life. We were not saved to neglect the gathering which His death secured. What does this mean? Probably good for us from time to time to apply a bit more pointedly, but does this mean that we must join every possible gathering of the church? 
or otherwise were disobeying the Lord. I don't think that would be an appropriate application. There are elderly members of our church who do not drive at night, and they probably shouldn't. Maybe we could pick them up. Maybe we don't need to. Some members work evenings, and while there may be wisdom in seeking to change that schedule, they at this point cannot. And so to attend our evening services on Wednesdays or Sundays is just not reasonable. Don't think they're living in sin, breaking this command. Some members are dealing with disease and the physical strength necessary to attend services ebbs and flows. They might make it three times one week and once the next, or some are not making it for months and months, if not for the rest of their lives because of physical ailment. That's not disobedience to this command. There's necessity there. There's bitter providence there. There should be a a, a freedom of conscience to know that's not the point. And every one of us gets too sick to attend church or we travel out of town from time to time. It's not saying don't ever leave town. I think the issue is more this way. Are you consistently gathering as God's child with God's people to feed on God's word and to build up his body? As God enables you, are you able to say, I gather consistently with God's people? Or let's say it this way, do you have a clear conscience that you attend the assembly as often as God wants you to? As often as he intends for you to best serve the growth and stability of the assembly? Well, this also brings up the issue of virtual church. Is that attending church when I watch a service virtually? I think it's good to watch a worship service by, let's just talk about our live stream uh, service when we provide that service for others. I think it's wise to watch that when unable to gather with the church. And we have some that are limited to that. And I don't think we know of any that want it that way. But thankfully, through this technology, certainly better to hear the message that's preached, to see the assembly, to sing the same songs, certainly some benefit to that. There's a connection to the fellowship of the church that way. But live streaming a service at home should never replace gathering with Christ's people. We are not to neglect the physical gathering. Let's not make it complicated. We're not to neglect the physical gathering. So if you watch a live stream service that you could just as well attend, but choose not to, watching the live stream becomes a cover for disobedience to the Lord of the church. He died to bring us together. We should come together. We should not look for reasons not to come together, and we should not, if we choose not to come together, be satisfied with watching something on a screen. Number three, to be bodily present with one another is crucial to the kind of relationships God has designed us to pursue as a body. To be bodily present with one another 
is crucial to the kind of relationships that God has designed us to pursue as a body. We cannot adequately or with sufficient consistency pour out love and good deeds on people that we never see in person. Now, I've talked about live stream. That's small peanuts to what's coming. We have got now uh, churches that are talking about virtual reality and metaverse avatars. I don't even know what on earth that is. I think I kind of sort of know now. But where you can don goggles and seat yourself virtually next to other avatars and interact with them. Some churches are using holograms instead of a live preacher. Who said I can't be in two places or ten places at once? Here I am. Yeah, and I would say precisely uh, watch you, not gather with you. Suffice it to say that God calls us to gather together physically as his church, and he knew at that time every technological advance that would be made in the years until he returns. He said, I died to bring you together. There is something about that physical presence that cannot be substituted. And if you think sitting in your living room wearing goggles is really a real conversation with a real person, you need to think differently. As one commentator noted, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also don't have to go home to be married. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also don't have to go home to be married. In fact, there is a dynamic in the gathered church of the redeemed. Those indwelt by the Spirit of God, there is a dynamic as we come together, a fire that is kindled in the heart that really is beyond explanation, isn't it? The ministry of this church to my heart this morning in singing for reasons I can't define, but particularly that last song before I came up, that was a ministry to my soul I can't find online. I can't find virtually. I can't find on my own. There's a ministry that is unique to that gathering, and it looks forward to the gathering of eternity when we will be in resurrected bodies, physical bodies in the physical presence of Christ. We should not sell cheaply that presence with one another. Again, borrowing, I'm borrowing here from uh, Kent Hughes who quotes Martin Luther and said this, at home, in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. Martin Luther is known to overstate things once in a while. <laughs> I don't think that was ever, um, it was always the case with him. But at, you know what he's saying. At home in my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Have you felt that breakthrough? 
Have you drawn closer to the Lord as the singing church breaks through to your soul? As the message of God's Word breaks through upon you in a way that cannot be manufactured on your own? When we stand on our own, and we should in the presence of the Lord, we can gain much, but when we come together by His grace and by His grace alone, there is so much that can be accomplished. Eric prayed today for our Chinese brothers and sisters. If you're watching what is going on there, there is a nation that is seeking to crush the gathering of Christ's people. They are seeking to crush it dead. And then we decide, yeah, I don't need to go to church. There's so many believers there if they could just be together with God's people, but they can't. What takes place in the dynamic of the gathered church can kindle the heart. I see this illustrated, for instance, in a, um, I was on a subway in New York City some years back in ministry on my way to overseas somewhere. And I'm on the subway. The doors, thing stops, the doors open, and this single man steps in with, I think it was an accordion, some sort of instrument. He steps in the door, starts singing at the top of his lungs. The door's shut behind him, and he's just singing like really loud and playing this instrument really loud. And I found it so fascinating. I'm looking around. Not one single person made eye contact. Not one single person acted like they even knew he was there. We stop, the doors open, and out he goes. It was like he wasn't there. Have you ever seen one of these flash mobs? You know, people just in some weird place all start, I mean, they're, they're good singers, and there's a whole bunch of them start singing, and you see the faces of people, and they're just like, wow, this is amazing. And when they finish, there's usually like cheering and clapping, and, and people probably telling other people about what happened there. Well, I'm telling you about this single guy, but I can tell you he made no real effect on anybody. But there's something about the dynamic of bringing voices and people together that God knew as he made us. This is important. Imagine down there in New York City that I'd gone to a Broadway play. You're there with other people watching this performance. And it has a certain feel to it. But imagine that in comparison with watching it at home on TV by yourself. When God's people gather together, God is in their midst. The Spirit is teaching His truth and convicting of sin. And love can flow between members. Let us value this. And let us say that if we get what Christ has done, we know who he is, then we focus on the gathering of his church. So a family learns that it has inherited a beautiful, expensive plot of land. They respond accordingly. Their lives are changed. 
If you are here without Christ today, let me say that something far greater than that has happened. Christ Jesus was given by the Father to pay the final sacrifice for sin. It is a gift of salvation to those who will trust Him. And I would call you to receive that gift, to repent and to trust in Christ as your Savior. And when we come as His people to trust Him as Savior, we see the reality of what our great high priest has accomplished. When we see that, that, that He's seated on heaven's throne, where we now have full access, when we realize that He has provided for the eternal forgiveness of our sins and assured us that we would live in God's presence for eternity, how will we respond? How must we respond? We will draw near to Him. We will hold fast to our confession and we will edify His church as we gather together. The high Christology and the deep theology of the book of Hebrews doesn't end with packing our head full of a bunch of theological notes. They are vital. We find our hope and our life in them. But where that is to lead is to hearts aflame in knowing Christ in loving Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and pouring our lives into this gathering and these people, the members of the body of Christ that Jesus died to save. These are just normal responses to those who have seen Christ. Have you seen Him? Do you know who He is? Do you see what He's done? Let us draw near. Let us hold fast our confession. And may we give ourselves to building up His church. Father, we praise You for what Christ has accomplished. I pray that as we talk today, some of us, a good number of us in smaller groups, as we seek to apply and um, meditate and consider, I pray, Father, that You would meet with us and help us to deepen further in what You've revealed I pray in behalf of any who know not Christ as Savior. And Lord, I pray that you'd open their blind eyes to see the wonder of salvation in Jesus' name and meet with each of us here, we pray. May we, even as we now pray and meditate and sing, may we draw near. Through Christ we pray.